So we come to Daniel chapter 6, and uh, normally I finish my sermon and then wrap it up, and then one of the last things I do is I do my PowerPoint, and, uh, and that's what you see on the screen. Um, except my sermon changed at about 5 o'clock this morning, and so there's no PowerPoint to show you. There's just a sermon to preach. Um, so we want to go to Daniel chapter 6. And uh, we're starting there. I've been, uh, um, we almost certainly have to come back to this amazing chapter. We all know it as Daniel in the lion's den. So what has happened is the Babylonian Empire has just been overthrown. It's been replaced uh, by the Medo-Persian Empire. We, there's quite a strong possibility that this guy Darius the Mede, if you look at the end of the chapter, there's a, I, you know, Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius the Mede and Cyrus the Persian. Um, but that and in the original language can actually mean an explanation. Darius the Mede, uh, the Mede who is, or that is, Cyrus the Persian. That makes a sense of a lot of history. We can't be 100% certain, but that, that little conjunction is used in several ways to explain it. So Daniel hears from God in a uh, in a dream, that is a vision, or he hears from God in dreams and visions, and you know, is it, which is which is exactly which. Um, any case, I don't want to get too lost in it, but it is very possible that we are dealing with in this chapter. Why do I need to introduce this? We are introducing uh, and meeting Darius the Mede, who may very well be Cyrus the Persian who after an encounter with God's people said, you can go back home. You can go to Jerusalem. You can build your temple. Let's give you all the precious things that were being defiled by the previous. What would make that king do this? We might just be getting some insight today. Daniel chapter 6. It pleased Darius to appoint 120 satraps, uh, those are big guys, big guns, um, to rule throughout the kingdom with three administrators over them, even bigger guns, and one of whom was Daniel. And the satraps were made accountable to them so that the king might not suffer state capture. Now Daniel so distinguished himself among the administrators and the satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. At this, everyone cheered and said, what a good boy is he? No. The administrators and the satraps immediately tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel in his conduct of government affairs, but they were unable to do so. God give us Daniels. They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. Finally, these men said, we will never find any basis for charges against this man, Daniel, unless it has something to do with the law of his God. So these administrators, how many administrators were there? Three, 120 satraps. Now, when it says administrators, plural, in other words, the other two of the head honchos. And satraps, we don't know how many of the 120, it doesn't really matter, went as a group to the king and said, 
making Darius live forever. The royal administrators, prefects, satraps, advisors, and governors have all agreed, what about Daniel, that the king should issue an edict and enforce the decree that anyone who prays to any god or human being during the next 30 days, except you, your majesty, shall be thrown into the lion's den. Now, emperor worship wasn't, uh, uh, you know, invented by Rome, so this was, this was, Somehow, you know, fairly normal in the course of things. And, and so the idea that when you've just conquered a place, you've got to take on its gods. And, you know, all the time since Pharaoh in the Old Testament and the firstborn son there, they thought of themselves as gods. And the plagues, by the way, are forms of... Uh, you know, direct attacks against different Egyptian deities, for example. And so there is this space where um, this idea that the rulers and the emperors would have some kind of divine status. Now, your majesty, verse 8, issue the decree, put it in writing so that it cannot be altered in accordance with the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revealed, uh, repealed. And so... There was this thing, and it's known throughout history, it occurs again in the book of Esther, for example, and so of the idea, you might even hear the, 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 the um, idiom, the law of the Medes and Persians, meaning the, these rules can't be broken. They can't be changed. So the king put the decree in writing. Now when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, so it probably had insight that it was actually in in the making, but now he hears it's been published. He went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened towards Jerusalem. Three times a day, he got on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God, just as he had done before. You're faced with a death sentence. How do you start your prayer? giving thanks. Then these men went as a group and found Daniel praying and asking God for help. So he does get to asking God for help. So they went to the king and spoke to him about his royal decree. Did you not publish a decree that during the next 30 days, anyone who prays to any God or human being except you, your majesty, would be thrown into the lion's den? The king answered, the decree stands in accordance with the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be repealed. And they said to the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, your majesty, or to the decree you put in writing. He still prays three times a day. When the king heard this, he was greatly distressed. He was determined to rescue Daniel, made every effort until sundown to save him. Then the men went as a group to King Darius and said to him, Remember, your majesty, that according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, no decree or edict that the king issues can be changed. And so the king gave the order, and they brought Daniel, and they threw him in the lion's den. And the king said to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve continually, rescue you. A stone was brought and placed over the mouth of the den. A little bit of a prophetic action there. The king sealed it with his own signet ring and the rings of his nobles. 
so that Daniel's situation might not be changed. It wasn't just the king's seal. All the guys who wanted Daniel in there sealed him in there. Then the king returned to his palace and spent the night without eating and without any entertainment being brought to him, and he could not sleep. And at the first light of dawn, the king got up, hurried to the lion's den. When he came near the den, he called to Daniel in an anguished voice. Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to rescue you from the lions? And Daniel answered, may the king live forever. My God sent his angels, and he shut the mouths of the lions. They have not hurt me because I was found innocent in his sight. Guilty before men, innocent before God. Guilty before the empire, innocent before God. Guilty by every standard of their laws. I was found innocent before God. Nor have I ever done any wrong before you, your majesty. And the king was overjoyed. Gave orders to lift Daniel out of the den. When Daniel was lifted out of the den, no wound was found on him. Sounds like the clothes that didn't smell of smoke in Daniel chapter 3. Because he had trusted in his God. He had trusted in his God. And then at the king's command, the men who had falsely accused Daniel were brought in and thrown into the lion's den along with their wives and children. Gosh, still brutal. Before they reached the floor of the den, the lions overpowered them and crushed all their bones. So these were hungry lions. Then King Darius wrote to all the nations and peoples of every language in all the earth, more Pentecost language, may you greatly prosper. I issue a decree that in every part of my kingdom, people must fear and reverence the God of Daniel. For he is the living God. He endures forever. His kingdom will not be destroyed. His dominion will not end, never end. He rescues and saves. What a wonderful description. He rescues and saves. He performs signs and wonders in the heavens and on the earth. He rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. And so Daniel, by now an old man, probably in his 80s, prospered during the reign of Darius, that is, or maybe, and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. So we start in this chapter today. There's no ways we're going to do it justice in one Sunday. But I want us to just kick off with uh, some of these thoughts. The first is the empire. There's, there's these contrasts. There's <clears throat> the whole chapter is built around tension and conflict, opposing forces. And so, uh, yeah, and, and kingdom always produces that. 
Jesus comes, and what do you see in, the, in his life? There's this empires in conflict, opposing forces, and stuff is all going down. And so as we come into the space, we find the empire's injustice versus Daniel's integrity. Second thing we find is Darius's anxiety versus Daniel's peace. Crazy, eh? The third thing is we find Babylon's lions versus Daniel's God. So let's quickly uh, dive in there. Wonder who's going to win. The empire's injustice versus Daniel's integrity. Our story begins with a glimpse into the palace intrigues. These politicians. Daniel finds himself appointed to the highest office in the empire but for the king. He's one of two, you know, there's three administrators and then they oversee all the government ministers, which would have probably been multiple tribal chiefs. So people still lived in cities and tribes and that kind of thing. So it wouldn't have had a same kind of structure. It would have been so these people would have come in and they would have formed alliances and it would have still been quite a toxic mix of the political landscape. They didn't all belong to the governing party. Um, and uh, <coughs> Daniel comes into this space. And in that intrigue, his integrity is a threat. Because he's not living by the intrigue and by the alliances and by the ways of keeping yourself in power and removing other people in power. He's literally seeking to serve the king because he serves the Lord. To give his integrity the kind of power that King Darius had in mind would have ruined half the people's political future. And so they're going, it's him or us. Daniel has to be removed. And so they seek to accuse him because they can find no corruption. He's completely trustworthy, neither corrupt nor negligent. He's good at what he does. He pays attention and he won't cheat. Please, God, more of that. Now, he's not sinless and he's not perfect. He's just faithful to uphold the law. But they discover a vulnerability. Daniel will not compromise on his faith and on his obedience to God. And so the trap is set for 30 days. You may only pray to this new king. As we've seen, the emperor worship all the way back since Pharaoh and others. And so human governors would come and go and their sons would often be, you know, born as gods and all the rest of it. So the trap is set. What will Daniel do? He goes home and lives his faith. Now, it was an act of civil disobedience. He knew the law. But he didn't go and try and protest or attract maximum press coverage or whatever it was. They have to follow him home. They have to listen at his window. They have to peep and cheat and crook and all the rest of it. And they discover him giving thanks. If you knew that praying would cost you your life, would you start with thanksgiving? 
80 years old. God, you've never let me down. Thank you. God, you've provided for me. God, you were with me when I was taken as a young teenager out of exile. God, how many times have you not heard my prayer? How many times have you not given me grace? How many times have you not lifted me up and placed me where you want me? How many times? Oh, God, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I am so grateful to you. And his prayer is not informed by the trigger of a threat. It is shaped by years and years of honoring the God who made him everything he is. And so he's not going to change. And then they hear him asking God for help. He knows that he is completely dependent upon God. And that's okay. And so they watch Daniel. They have a problem with Daniel. And in the surest sign of dysfunctional intrigue, they oppose Daniel. And so they talk to someone else. They go to the king. And if someone's got a problem with you and they're determined to talk to someone else, you can know there's palace intrigue, even if you just live in a two-bedroom flat. And Daniel is caught. The king realizes this is a setup, and the king realizes, I have been a fool. Oh! He allowed his ego and the culture of the day to become a weapon in the hands of his best man's enemies. Now he's going to lose his best man. And he tries his best to get Daniel out of the trap that he had inadvertently laid. This is really interesting. You know, Daniel is a book about kingdoms, empires, about dodgy human rule that become beasts and everything like that. And, and Darius stroke Cyrus is consistently portrayed, even though these are like, you know, this pagan emperor is consistently portrayed with empathy and with like this seed of goodness inside this man. Here's the thing. The machinery of human governments, the machinery of empire, the machinery of the legal machine can sometimes make good people do evil. So they create this machinery of the law of the Medes and Persians and everything like that. You know, when Paul urges us in Romans 13 to accept rulers, and by the way, that's You've got to read that in the right of the, the rest of Scripture and in the light of Romans 12 and 13, which is actually a strategy as to how you overcome evil when it takes institutional form. So go back and read that. And we'll come back to that, by the way, when we unpack this chapter fully. But the machinery of human empire sometimes makes good people complicit in evil. The strange thing is, this law leaves Daniel doing what he wants to do, which is pray, and Darius doing what he doesn't want to do. 
What's the irony there? You know, Daniel's actions remain free and they're entirely consistent with his integrity and his faith. So that is the intrigue of empire versus Daniel's integrity. Secondly, we see Darius's anxiety versus Daniel's peace. Daniel wasn't trying to defy empire. Of course he was, but he, that wasn't his main concern. His main concern was the honor of God, his dependence upon God, his trust in God. I'm convinced that what he was praying during that time, and they didn't catch him the first time, they watched him, and they, it says clearly he prayed three times a day. And uh, so they got his habit, and they got his rhythm, and everything like that. And what he prayed consistently, consistently, I'm convinced had an impact on what happened in the den. His faith and obedience had brought him to the place where he is at peace. Lord, if you don't come through, I'm grateful for 80 or more years. I've seen my last sunrise. I'd rather serve you and die than fail you and live. And so he's probably in those moments also surrendering his survival instinct. Lord, I don't want to compromise. Give me grace. Stay the course. He doesn't know. He doesn't know. And I mean, after all, what harm? This is just for 30 days. And he's not even being asked to do evil. He's just being asked that if you do pray, you pray to the king and not to your God. I mean, if ever there was a compelling argument for fasting prayer for 30 days, you know, there it is. Daniel would rather die than not pray. Wow. We need to understand how deeply connected a meaningful communion with God is through prayer to God himself. That our connection, it's just we're kidding ourselves if we think we've got this amazing walk with God and, you know, I'm faith and I'm good and I'm his child and he loves me and all the rest of it. And we're just not on speaking terms. Prayer was far too significant for Daniel to even consider such a compromise. To just be silent. Or to just not kneel. Or to just pray quietly in his heart. Or to leave the window closed. But you know, the exiles, they had a promise that had been released by King Solomon that if they get carried into exile, they can look 
to where the temple was built and call out to God and he will hear them. And Daniel's not going to close the window. He's not going to shut up. He refuses to stay standing. He gets on his knees. He gives thanks and he asks God for help in the face of death. How important is prayer to me? Is, is our connection to God so profound, so significant, we'd rather face the lions than lose our communion? Wow. I'm afraid that in today's world, most of us haven't even learned what it means to start praying, let alone to not stop. I need to say that again. I'm afraid in today's world, the danger is that most of us haven't learned to really start praying, let alone be intimidated to stop. How deeply would it disrupt me if someone wanted me? Could I carry on for 30 days as if nothing had happened? Would anyone notice the difference? What are the reasons, excuses, I tell myself to excuse my lack of prayer? Craig, don't give yourself reasons to not pray. Reshape your life, rebuild your routine, relearn your habits. Do whatever it takes, but pray. You know, the crazy thing is, as Daniel goes towards this den, he has far more freedom. When he gets thrown into the den, he's much freer than the king who can't even sleep on his luxury bed. Darius, you know, this is Daniel's peace versus Darius's anxiety. Darius is a case study of anxiety. He's been tricked, and now on his conscience is the suffering of a good man who's done no wrong, and the king is incredibly distressed. He racks his brain to find a solution. He's trapped. He's bound by the constitution, the highest law in the land, the famously immutable law of the Medes and Persians. And so as this goes, we see him saying to Daniel as he's, thrown into the den at the king's command. The king himself says, may your God, whom you serve continually. You, like this isn't a hiccup. You serve him nonstop. We sang it earlier. I am yours, forever yours. May your God, whom you serve continually, rescue you. He knows Daniel is a man of faithfulness. He knows his consistency, his integrity. So he's appealing to Daniel's God to save Daniel for his sake. 
He realizes that in his empire, he's got a brood of vipers. And he doesn't know how within the ambit of the law he can deal with that. But he knows he needs this man of integrity by his side. He can't sleep. He refuses comfort or distraction. No entertainment at night. No food. He starts fasting. And at first light, not even at dawn or daybreak or at breakfast, like the first light, the king is rushing to the den. And with a voice breaking in anxious strain, he calls out with a mixture of hope and despair, Daniel, servant of the living God, as your God, whom you serve continually. It's interesting. Darius has come to know Yahweh as the God Daniel won't give up serving. Parents, you want your kids to know Jesus? Don't run around after every fad that they have. Let them come to know Jesus as the God you won't give up serving. You've got colleagues, you've got family. Let them come to know Jesus as the God you won't give up serving. They can do whatever. They will. Darius comes to know Yahweh as the God Daniel would not give up serving. And as he cries out with this mixture of hope and despair, he's looking at this as it were, message of God. And he's hoping, Lord, give me a sign that this is true and that you are real. Darius's anxiety, Daniel's peace. Crazy thing is the king is captive to his own empire. Daniel's living free in a lion's den. So let's, in closing, look at Babylon's lions versus Daniel's God. Yes, Daniel, he's living well. He's ready to die well. But he doesn't die. Instead, as he enters the den, he discerns the presence of the king of heaven who has sent an angel. This is not the first time Daniel has encountered angels. It's the first time we encounter them in the book. But when you get the dating of his dreams correct, you realize that he's met many angels before this point. Because the dating of the later chapters actually is included in the narrative section. And he walks in and he suddenly goes, ah, you're here. He's had conversations with these guys before. I don't know what they chatted about that night. His prayer isn't all about himself. His prayer takes him into the community of the authorities of heaven itself. And so his moment of danger is another moment of encounter. Knowing, living in the presence of God. Two reasons are given for his rescue. Why Babylon's lions 
did not have a snack that night. The second one is in verse 23. As the king hears Daniel's voice, he is overjoyed, gave orders to lift Daniel out of the den. Daniel's lifted out of the den. No wound is found on him because he had trusted in his God. When did he trust in his God? When he was in the den, he was trusting in God all the way through from before until after, nothing was going to change. Notice this, though. The text is very clear. Daniel's faith was catalyst for a miracle. It wasn't just Daniel's need. People say, you're always going to have a problem in order to get a miracle. Well, you're also going to need a lot of faith before the problem comes so that you get your miracle. His faith. He trusted in his God. And the second reason in verse 22 is he says this, I was found innocent in God's sight. You know, God wanted King Darius to know the difference between human empire and God's kingdom. To know the difference between true guilt and true innocence. To know the difference between justice and injustice. God is preaching to the emperor and he wanted these kings to know there's a big difference between the power to kill and the power to save. And God holds both. Jesus was very clear. Don't be afraid of him who can only destroy your body. <laughs> Fear him who holds all the power, body and soul. You know, nearly 500 years later, An innocent man would be executed and crucified during the time of the fourth empire that Daniel saw or explained to Nebuchadnezzar. He would not be rescued. But in his faith and in his obedience, when empire exerted its power to kill and destroy, God would release upon the earth the power to save. And to raise the dead to life. And to bring into this creation a new creation. And so by faith in him, in spite of our sin. You know, Daniel hadn't sinned, but by faith in him, in spite of our sin. As we repent before this crucified king, so we too are found innocent in God's sight. We too know that the true God loves and has the power to rescue and save. To rescue and save. Sounds like someone should write a song about it. Oh, wait, it's coming at the end of the chapter. It's so good. We live certain that every injustice... Let me put it this way. When God's in the picture, there will be a greater justice that will prevail over every injustice. And that greater justice came to its supreme expression 
when Jesus died on the cross during the time of the fourth empire. No matter what people have the power to do, our God has the power to rescue and save. No matter what people have the power to do, our God has the power to rescue and save. Turn to someone and say, our God has the power to rescue and save. So what's the lesson? And I need to wrap up. We're into injury time already. The lesson is not that if we're good, we'll never get hurt or disappointed. This isn't a guarantee that bad things can't happen to good people. Consider Acts chapter 12. The disciple James, brother of John, is arrested. And the church is distressed and they're praying, but he gets beheaded. Then Peter is arrested and he's about to be beheaded. But an angel comes and he's miraculously delivered. Now, I know that one of them supported the United and the other city, so, uh, you know. <laughs> I'll leave you to work out which one was which. Why does God deliver the one and not the other? Wasn't it the church didn't pray? We dare not make this transactional. That's not what made David so powerful. God, if you save me, I will serve you. It's the same as what we saw in chapter 3. My God is able. But I have no guarantees. But that doesn't matter. I trust him. I'm in his hands. I trust him. And so God is glorified in all ways. Which leads us to the concluding poem that this is the living God. He endures forever. His kingdom will not be destroyed. His dominion will never end. He rescues and saves. He performs signs and wonders in the heavens and on the earth. Sounds like Acts 2 again. And he rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. Sounds like Daniel 6 and Hebrews 11. Make no mistake. This was Darius's edict, but it was Daniel's theology. Daniel's faith is now being heralded into a kingdom that's about to tell people, you can go home. The social experiment of taking the elite of all the different kingdoms and trying to make something new and trying to make people renounce their identity and their origin and their place that is precious to them, that social experiment is over. You're going to be going home. And you can take the precious treasures of your temple. Why should I have them in a museum when they could be part of your community and culture? Now, the ideas inside this little poem deserve a sermon on their own. And so that's what they'll get at some point when we're able to return to Daniel part two.